faithful you are, perfect. As we uh, think about the fact that we need to make room for God in our lives, and he is faithful. He is very faithful. I can attest to that with the few years I've got under my belt that God is faithful, but I join a chorus that stretches back some 2,000 years. So faithful you are, Lord. And uh, that's why faith works. We're in the letter of James, and the theme of the letter is faith works. That is, not only does faith exercise its trust and confidence in the Lord, but it exercises it, you know, the life that we lead in a way that honors and proves the reality of the Lord in our lives. We've been looking at chapter 4, verses 11, through chapter 5, verse 6, And I want to review, as we make room for God, that in verses 11 and 12, we saw that without making room for God, people can be filled with self-righteousness. But God, present in our lives, helps us to be humble and realize, you know what? He's the only one who's truly righteous. But thank the Lord that his grace His goodness, his favor, his mercy extends to me. Without room for God, in verses 13 through 17, we saw that plans can be filled with self-reliance. And today we want to look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Without room for God, prosperity in all of its forms can be filled with self-indulgence. In other words, making it all about me. So if you have your Bible, let's uh, take a moment and read those verses, and then we'll look particularly at chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, but I'm going to back up and review again, starting in chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, Brothers and sisters, the one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges his brother or sister speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, Tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know that what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl or wail, for the miseries 
that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I've got to pause just a moment before I ask you this next question. Who do you admire? You ever wished that you could be like someone else or even be someone else? Can you picture that person? Some of you, all you have to do is think about going to school and you can think of somebody that you admire. Some of us uh, out of school, maybe it's someone in the workforce or maybe it's a neighbor by the name of Jones. People we admire, all people that we admire are wealthy. Wealth is abundance. And abundance comes in all kinds of sizes and shapes because abundance is not just financial. For example, beside financial abundance, what, how about physical wealth? We don't talk about it that way, but there are people who have physical wealth. For example, when I was in school, well, even when I was in college, which is also school, but I, a little shorter period of time, there was um, the best-looking girl on campus. She was wealthy in good looks. There's wealth, physical wealth, in terms of athletic prowess. Some people just seem to have gifts of ability, speed, agility. They can letter in all four sports. Many go on to make a career of athletic prowess, and the rest of us think, well, I wish I had just a little, a smidgen of that. There's professional wealth, people in careers, your career perhaps, your area of strength. Maybe they have certain abilities that have caused them to rise up the ladder and you're lagging behind. There's social wealth, which kind of overlaps, and there's overlap in all of these categories because sometimes wealth in one area opens doors to wealth in other areas. Social wealth, your circle of influence, your relationships, 
It's true. At least it's true in my experience. It isn't who you are. It is who you know. And intellectual wealth, which could include even spiritual or inner emotional wealth, as well as intelligence. There are other kinds of wealth is what I want us to appreciate because often when we think of wealth, when we think of the wealthy, when we think of the rich, we're just thinking in terms of dollars and cents. And that's certainly something that we can count and we can appreciate, but there are other kinds of wealth. And the thing about wealth, in all these kinds of wealth, wealth packs a certain punch. Wealth has a certain attraction, and we call it power. Andy Crouch, in his book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power, says, and this is like a foundational definition that he gives for power. He says, power is the ability to make something of the world. Power is the ability to make something of the world. And all of the examples of wealth that I mentioned have a certain ability because of their wealth to make something of the world. They have a certain power to make something of the world. Andy also said this, power is nothing, worse than nothing, without love. Now just think about that for a moment because I want you to appreciate the fact that all the forms of wealth that I've mentioned and even some that I haven't or that you might think of of yourself, all those forms of wealth are a form of power and in the hands of selfishness, that kind of wealth, that kind of power is not making something of the world that is good, but making something of the world that ends in harm and hurt. Any wealth tainted by selfishness turns its power for constructive good into power for destructive harm. Take beauty. I mentioned the prettiest girl on campus. Funny how sometimes when you get close to people who've been taking all of their conceit pills, how ugly they can actually be, and it changes their appearance on the outside because they've got what you might call an ugly soul. They're unkind. They think they're superior. They play people against each other and all kinds of other hijinks. Or the guy who has all the athletic prowess, he thinks he somehow earned all that ability. Yeah, he had to do something good with it, but now he struts around maybe because he thinks he's superior to you. Maybe even makes fun of your inabilities or your handicap. And I'll tell you, sometimes they feel like handicaps. I'm not trying to point the finger at any particular person except to illustrate, I think we all know what I'm talking about. 
But you know what? Beauty, athletic prowess can also be a curse. And I've touched on that. I found that people with physical beauty don't think they're beautiful enough. Isn't that ironic that the person that you might admire, that you'd say, man, I'd I'd love to look like her, or what would I give to look like him? And yet those very people that you admire can do little but find fault and waste constantly ways to think how this should be improved. People with financial wealth, I think you can take this to the bank, people with financial wealth don't think they're rich enough. You see, wealth of any kind if governed by selfishness, will never be wealth enough. Jesus said this on this very point. Where's the prophet? Now, this is a question that each of us has to ask. Where's the prophet? If you gain the whole world and lose your own soul. James here is describing Jewish Christians, as I've said before, the earliest Christians who are wealthy and greedy. They just need more. He doesn't use any of the words that are the major words for greed in the New Testament and in general Greek writing. What he does is he describes greed. And before we look at those descriptions a little more closely, I want you to hear what Jesus said about greed. He uses one of those words, pleonexia. And the interesting thing about this word is it, I mean, it sounds so fancy, especially if you say it in Greek, right? It's kind of like, ooh, that's got to mean something really deep. And it's really just scrunching two words together. One is the word for much, and the other word is the word to have or to get. So greed, this fancy word for greed just means I gotta have much, I gotta have more. And that's really the basic definition. Jesus uses this word, Luke tells us, in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And this is what Jesus says. Watch out, be on your guard against all types of greed. Now, the word greed is often translated by other words, like the word covetousness. Covetousness is greed. Or the word avarice. Have you ever heard of avarice? That's a good word, avarice. It's an insatiable craving for more. 
And all of those words, whether you call it greed, covetousness, or avarice, that's what Jesus is talking about. He says, be on your guard. Watch out for every form or kind of greed because, here's our reason, one's life, your life, my life, anyone's life, does not consist in the abundance of his or her possessions. Your life does not consist in your possessions, in your, th- in your stuff. Now, before and after this, in the Gospel of Luke, you know what Jesus was talking about? Stuff, possessions, and how we worry over our possessions. So you see, it's not just that money or wealth or having more can get a hold of us, but we ought to be aware that symptomatically, we get emotionally tied up in it, and we become anxious, and we worry over it. In fact, if you've ever noticed that you worry about your bank account, you worry over money, then you know exactly what Jesus is talking about, and he's trying to break the grip and the bonds of that. We're identified, if Jesus says, your life does not consist in your possessions, then what happens if you're bound up in all your stuff? I remember when I was building my library, I still wrestle with this a little bit, but I thought, what would happen if all of my books burned up, if the house caught on fire and all, everything I owned was gone? Who would I be? And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's saying you could gain the whole world but lose your soul, which is to say that we become identified with, we become bought out by the things that we pursue that have captured, so to speak, our souls. And if we lose it, we don't even, we're gone because our self is identified with our stuff. If you lose all that stuff, are you lost in the process? Is your identity lost? Is what is valuable to you lost? If it is, that's why Jesus said, you've lost your soul. No wonder Jesus asked that question, what does it profit? Paul uses another word for greed. And he calls it in Colossians 3, 5 and in Ephesians, uh, pardon me, Colossians 4, 5 and Ephesians 5, 5. You could see why I get confused. In both places, he uses the same word for greed and he says, he says, this greed is a false idolatry. It is a counterfeit idolatry that we put in the place of God a love of money, and that's exactly what the word greed there means, love of money, an affection for it. 
And in 1 Timothy 6.10, he uses another word, which, as I said, is a form of love of money. And he says, the love of money is the root of all evils. And why? Well, because that idolatry causes us to walk away from our faith. And he says, in doing that, we've suffered. He actually says, we stab ourselves. That's kind of a vivid image, isn't it? You know, you go to the pastor, he gives you some advice, and he says, listen, if you don't do this, you're going to be stabbing yourself, and you're going to feel nothing but a bunch of pains. Well, that's what Paul says there. He says, you'll be stabbing yourself and suffer an assortment of woes and pains. But you see, that's a great transition to what James is saying because that's what he's describing here when he talks about what happens when you get to the end of your greed, if you can ever get to it because it has no end. It just goes on and on and on. But he says when you run out of time and when the Lord's judgment comes upon you, he says there's going to be a realization. And he says in verse 1, it's going to begin with howling weeping and wailing. That's what he says. But to avoid it, we need to make room for God. Greed comes to grief in verse 1. Greed never gets enough in verses 2, 3, and 4. And greed is never satisfied in verses 5 and 6. Greed comes to grief. You know, as soon as you hear that, he says, wail, weep, you might as well get started. It would help you to appreciate what's going to happen because he says, these woes are coming upon you. And we think of the judgment, right? But I want us to think about not just the judgment in terms of punishment, but getting the judgment of God. I mean... When you, have you ever heard the expression, that person has good judgment? What does that mean to you? Does that mean punishment? No, that means that the person's sensible. They have a good grasp of reality. They know how life works. That's what we ought to be thinking about when we think about God's judgment, because when he reveals what... I think there's going to be with it a realization that we have given our entire life to the pursuit of something that is worthless. And I think that's going to cause some real grief, some real sadness. I mean, if, if all of a sudden this awareness just came over you like a wave that all these things in the eyes of the Lord was just worthless, didn't count for anything. I think that's going to be not just a gut check. There's going to come with that wave of reality some real remorse, some real sorrow. And that's what James, I think, is talking about, that realization that I have been completely foolish with most of my life. In Luke 16.25, when Jesus talked 
about the parable of, we call it the parable of Lazarus. Lazarus was blind and poor, a beggar. He was a beggar. And he even set out the gates of a rich, rich man. And in the, in the parable, the rich man and Lazarus are in Sheol, but they're separated. That is the place of the dead. Sheol, the place of the dead. Abraham is in the lower part, and Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man is really not liking it. And he says, have Lazarus run a drink of water down here to me. And Abraham says to, to the rich man, he says, he says, you had your time, and it was good. Now Lazarus is having his. In other words, there's going to be a turn of affairs. And some of us, I think all of us, are going to have regrets. Overshadowing all of this is verse 15 of the last chapter, if the Lord wills. There's proverbial uh, wisdom in, in the old I mean, from Old Testament through the New Testament, whether you were Jew, Greek, or Roman, or Latin, uh, whatever language you spoke, we have all this, this fund of wisdom, and they teach two things. One, one thing that's very, very important is that we're going to die, and our treasure is going to be in the hands of somebody else. I mean, it's just over and over in many different ways. Everything that you've earned, made, won, it's just going to roll over into somebody else's hands. It's going to be somebody else's inheritance. And the second thing is, is that it's very important to appreciate that we stockpile, stockpile, and stockpile, and yet our treasure is lost to corrosion, moth, and theft. Well, those are symbols for the ways that our wealth depreciates, you know? What, I mean, I, I, I got by on 30000 a year for 10 years in the 80s. Shelley told me right now that if we were to get our television hooked up, and I'm not even going to say the amount, but just to, to get it straightened out is an additional 50 bucks a month. And I'm going, forget it. Do you realize when I first got cable, when Shelly and I were just married, we were renting a house, it was eight bucks a month. Eight bucks a month. I'm poor by those standards. <laughs> Did you read? Surely you caught the news about that, that elderly couple in New York City. Might have been in one of the suburbs. And they saw a, a FedEx man bringing up a big package, so they opened the door. And he and another guy, they, they took him for everything they had. You know, FedEx is supposed to be bringing you something good, not something bad. They had all, everything also in a big safe that they thought was probably the safest place on earth, and they just carried the whole thing out. They couldn't get it open there, and they wouldn't give them the combination, but they just took it with them. All of a sudden, everything's gone. You see, there are just ways in which we can't stay ahead. There was a businessman that said, just a, 
a story. He was visited and offered or granted one request. So the businessman, savvy guy that he was, he says, I'd like a newspaper from this time next year. So it was given to him. And man, he was gloating as he was looking at the, uh, at the investment page and the stock market. And he realized, you know, between now and next year, I'm going to be a rich man because I know what to invest in. I know what's going to be blue chip. I know what's going to pay off. And then he turned the page, and he saw his picture. What? Yeah, it was the obituary. Sometimes we have everything going for us, but we just don't know what's right around the corner. Greed comes to grief. Secondly, greed never gets enough. There are two pieces or exhibits of evidence. If you thought James was in court here, you could just imagine him offering to the judge these two exhibits for evidence to convict the wealthy of greed. And the first piece of evidence that he submits is in verses 2 and 3. He says, look at the evidence of hoarding you know, amassing, treasuring, storing up. It reminded me of uh, when I was pastoring in San Francisco. We had a lot of, we had people from every nationality. It was really wonderful. But we had quite a few people who had come from the Philippines. And so through knowing them, you become aware of what's going on in the Philippines. Some of you may even remember it was really caught the news, but uh, there was a, uh, something of a monarchish uh, dictator, uh, Ferdinand Marcos and his wife Imelda. And they were really making it rich off the people. They were essentially and eventually deposed and they fled the country and when the news went into their palaces and their places, it was reported, I know, <clears throat> I kept one of the pieces. Imelda, and I'm just going to summarize, she left hordes of shoes. I'll bet many of you can, can remember that figure. I would never forget it. 3,000 pairs of shoes. She left five shelves of unused clutches and bags such as Gucci bags with the price tags still on them, stuffed with all kinds of paper to help them hold their shape just as you'd take them when you leave the store. Closets and trunks of unused clothes, bottles and tubs of perfume, even Christian Dior wrinkle cream. And Amelda was known to drop in a single day 12 million in Switzerland on jewelry. One U.S. representative who went into their, their places in the Philippines was interviewed and he said it was the worst case of conspicuous consumerism I have ever seen. 
Have you ever seen uh, Lifestyles of Rich and Famous? Ever seen that show? How about Cribs? Uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous ran from 1984 to 95, but Cribs is still going. It started in 2000. I'm not talking about baby Cribs. I'm talking about, you know, yeah, the lifestyle locations, the digs, the houses, the cars, the special uh, rooms and accoutrements of their mansions that are called cribs, and it is pretty amazing, you know, and to see the, not just one car, but three or four or five cars displayed in the large driveway, everything's just sparkling. And when we compare ourselves with them, we think, I'm not rich, I'm not greedy, I'm modest. I'm controlled. I'm quite conservative by, by comparison. But the thing is, is that with that kind of wealth, it does create a craving, a sense of I am deficient. I don't have enough, whether it's looks, whether it's brain power, whether it's physical skill and agility, whatever it is, sometimes when we compare and contrast, we end up discontented. And the thing that we have to know about hoarding is it doesn't satisfy that. It never fulfills it. It's never enough. And James says here, here's the evidence, you see. He says, all of these coins that you have, they're, they're corroding from disuse. See, that tells me they're, they're hoarded. They're stockpiled. He says, you've got these beautiful robes that the, you know, you've got a closet full, whereas the average person can only wear one. But yours are just catching dust and being eaten by moths because you have way more than you can use. You're hoarding, he says. You're over getting and under using. You don't need all that. And yet we have this craving, you see, picked up in shows like Cribs, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, commercials, 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 always showing you what you need, what you don't have, what you would feel better about yourself if you had more of. But just think about this. See, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, that was from 84 to 95. Do any of you remember who hosted that? Yeah, Robin Leach with a champagne glass. Where's Robin today? Do you know? He died last year. How about the Cribs? What if you look, watched all 19 seasons? If you go back to the first seasons, where are those people? You see, beauty fades. Talents diminish. If you don't work your muscles, man, you're going to lose them. It's not natural, you see. If you just stand around, lie around, it's going to go. It's going to disappear. And careers do too. Moments in the spotlight. People that were famous on cribs or the lifestyles of the rich and famous, if they're not gone, 
in many cases, they're not in the spotlight anymore. They're not the toast of the town. Have you ever been to a reunion? Reunions are good for the soul. All the people that I thought, man, I, I, I am nobody compared to them. If I could just be them, go to a reunion after five years. It'll be just a little, hmm. And then 10 and 15, and pretty soon you're saying, man, I'm glad I'm not them. <laughs> the point is, James started by saying, what is your life? It's a puff of smoke, a quick mist. And that's the length of life. What about the career? What about the, the being in the spotlight? That's even shorter. What are you living your life for? What are you giving your life to? What are you investing in? Many of us are upset all the time over issues having to do with wealth. That's a reverse form of greed. Why are we so troubled? Why are we so agitated? Why is it that other people get under our skin so much? We're so preoccupied with other things that many of us have failed in this very thing to make room for God. And in Him, to live the life that He will cause to flourish and blossom. And you will be content and, and know great significance and security in the process. Greed is never satisfied. His verdict in verses 5 and 6, notice it, the expression, fattened your hearts. He says, you've fattened your hearts. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, this is what the Lord says to Isaiah. He says, make the heart of this people fat. He's going to do it by giving them the good news. He's going to give them God's wonderful message of salvation. It's going to make their hearts fat. The downside of fat and this comes out in the ministry of Isaiah, is there's also another part of that message, which is judgment. But the people are so content that they become dull and they can't hear the message of judgment. I think that's happened to us all in some way. I certainly think it's happened on a grand scale to the church in America and to the church in all first world countries. We've lost a sympathy for the poor. And we've become more like these rich that James is saying, the jig is up. You need to see that what you're doing is wrong before God. In the verse, the sixth verse, he says, you're murdering them. The poor cannot resist you. Of course they can't. It's not that they, they do not, they cannot resist the rich. The rich have all the leverage. And he uses the word condemn in verse 6. That's an important tip-off because it's a technical legal term. They're using the court system. Cronyism. You, you don't, look at there, there were not the per capita rich that we have today. Our middle class up is rich by world standards. 
certainly by the standards of the Bible, older New Testament. But the rich in first century times, time that Jesus taught, time that James wrote this letter, the rich ran the show. They had buddies. Buddies look out for each other. Buddies work together. You don't think the rich would know each other? And the cronyism in the court system, they can afford the lawyers. They can use the system. They can use the law against the poor. Many poor lose their land. Why? Maybe they, did, they had a, a bad harvest because a storm blew through. But in the process, they had, they had contracted to provide so much when they can't meet that contract because of ill fortune, rains that didn't come, storm that wiped out the crop, the rich can sweep in. They've got them over a barrel. They've got them by the law. And they take everything. And then, no, no kidding, we have all kinds of records of this. The poor end up working as indentured slaves on their own heritage, their own inherited land that had been in the family for generations. And they're enslaved. Rich people do that without even thinking. If you sat down with them and you said, look at what you're doing. Look at the way you're treating these people. God is not pleased. They'd say, it's, it's all law, legal. We did just what the law said we could. The law isn't always moral. And that's where Christ really makes a difference in us. We have a new heart in Jesus Christ. We have a new spirit in Jesus Christ. We are a new humanity. We are operating in the last times because we are operating in the kingdom of God. And we are to be its people. We'll always fail. Everyone here should be pricked in conscience and soul just like I am. I even wondered if I could get up and preach this because I can root out greed in my own heart and life. I can see stuff that I'll never get to use again, that my attic is full of. We're all guilty. But we can all change our heart, not by ticking off what we have to get rid of and defining how we stay within the law. No, we change our heart. We, we have God's heart for these things. We value not stuff and money. We value the fruit of the Spirit, the people that God gave his life for in Jesus Christ. And the more we do that, the more we won't care about the rest. We stand. I just want to remind you of I'm going to pray for us. But if God's spoken to your heart, you want to pray with me or any of the leadership, elders, deacons, pastoral staff will be up here after I say, after we say, amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. We want to live for you. We want to exemplify the true and good things that Jesus 
has made possible in our hearts because you reside within us in the power of your Holy Spirit. You've outfitted us with truth and new values. Help us to mix that up in the old kinds of thinking and watch you do a great work in us as we seek to live for you. And we thank you, Lord, for the gospel, for Jesus, for your Holy Spirit, for your love and your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, God bless you.